welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Welcome back to another episode of the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence. And before we begin, I would just like to send out a special thank you to our emotional support giraffe, Taylor Oaks, who is again behind the cameras, but who on our last episode joined us here in this seat to have a discussion about hypermobility and uh, EDS with Freya. So thank you very much, Taylor. And if you have not yet seen or listened to that episode, please go back because it is Excellent content, not just for people who have EDS and hypermobility spectrum disorders, um, but for normies like me. So go back and check that one out. Uh, Today, we are going to follow up a little bit on our prior episode to that one, which was changing your stimulus to change your life, where we touched base on how inputs in our lives affect our outputs. And so today, we're going to talk about why generalizations do harm, but why generalists thrive. So as always, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube, Move Daily Health Coaching. Uh, follow us on Instagram at move underscore daily underscore EDS. Of course, you can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple or Google or wherever you listen to those. And you can find everything else on our website at movewelldaily.com. So Freya, why do generalizations do harm while generalists thrive? So when we say generalizations, we're just talking about, you know, general health advice that um, isn't isn't general in the sense of like, you should move often, you should have water, you should sleep. It's not those generalizations, it's generalizations in um, the sense of you should only eat this type of food in order to be healthy. Like that's a generalization that's not actually super helpful because context is totally missing. A lot of things that we're reading online these days, basically. Yeah, essentially that. A lot of generalizations that people will receive from, you know, sources that are not speaking directly to them, don't know their health history, that kind of thing. Uh, and so the analogy to, to use here that's, you know, a bit tongue-in-cheek but also easy to understand um, is one that we'll borrow, we'll borrow part of from, from Cliff Harsky where we're all snowflakes. So you're all unique snowflakes. Um, so what I mean by that is that you might all be, we might all be composed of the same general material as humans, but then you have to take into context your unique environment. So within the context of your world, are you a snowflake that's trying to exist at the equator? Or are you a snowflake that's like happily going around? Snowflaking. in the North Pole. And, and so that really, the point there is just that interaction that we've spoken to before of organism and environment. And it's for that reason that in your own world, uh, you don't really benefit from the generalizations that are online. We will touch base along the way uh, about being a generalist. And again, generalizations don't have context to it and that magic like it depends uh, piece is, is really key here in understanding when advice is applicable to you. And even then, if it's online, <laughs> there are not enough characters available in anything um, for anyone to really properly explain who specifically it might apply to. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Specificity is important for a lot of jobs and a lot of hobbies, uh, a lot of athletes. And I think due to that factor, um, with being a lot of athletes, a lot of the 
generalizations come from, what do elite athletes do? And so that trickles down to the general population and people try and mimic that. But we have to understand that the general person and the elite athlete, for example, are so different. So using these generalizations that are now spread around are not the right recipe for what most people are trying to accomplish. So this is where becoming a generalist rather than a specialist is important, and you don't become a generalist by listening to generalizations, unfortunately. So Freya, why don't we dive into this a little bit on the movement side, and we'll just go from there. Mm-hmm. So the on the movement side of things, there are tons of uh, generalizations available online. If you are this weight and this age, you should be able to do X, Y, Z. Our beginner push-up challenge is 100 push-ups, and our advanced is 300. Well, quite frankly, like where are those numbers coming from? It doesn't really make sense. If you are able to, then yes, you should, you know. Do as many push-ups as you can. Do as many push-ups as your joints and your body's able to do. Is it a movement that, you know, could help train somebody to get off the ground? Sure. Is it a full body movement? Absolutely. Do I need to do 100? No. (laughs) Do I need to do 300? Also, no. I will pass. If you want to, sure, fine. But, you know, again, it also goes into, there are a lot of other questions to ask there in terms of why you want to do that. Are they of good quality? What is the end goal? Why should you maybe not do that and go from there? So that's an example that I wish could say, I could say was extreme, but it's just really, really common so with cool. a lot of fitness challenges. And, and the problem I really have is when they say that a beginner level is 100 push-ups. Come on, that's not fair. Like, you just discouraged a ton of people from understanding that doing five really crisp reps is awesome. Yeah, and rant on push-ups. Like, I mean, to do a real push-up from the floor, like, doing one is very difficult to do it properly. So to say 100 is for a beginner is absolutely insane. You're going to blow up your shoulders before anything else happens. So anyway, small rant. Continue. (laughs) This one gets us fired up. Fired up with this, guys. Fired up. (laughs) Uh, I I really do think the problem is like labeling and then pulling up arbitrary reps doesn't serve anyone. It's a generalization that's just not accurate. Mm -hmm. Uh, So with that said, you know, what is true is that is that humans benefit from variability. We're not talking about, as we mentioned before, to reach a very, very high level in a given athletic domain, you do have to specify in that domain. To be healthy, it's not the same. And the more variability you have in your movement diet, the more resilient you are and the more tolerant you are to a variety of stimuli. So we know that that part is true. Is variability is really, really important in terms of, of human health and human function for whatever humans day-to-day life. And from there, you know, what we often see is that intensity in a certain realm is is often emphasized in generalization. So they say to be really strong and well-rounded, there's a certain intensity you must meet. Or, by contrast, we also see the other one is like heavyweights and going intense is bad for you. And I would say both arguments are, are incorrect. Again, <laughs> gray zones, the true point is that humans are variable and need variability for long-term health and we're talking about variability in terms of being able to express strength express mobility retain range of motion at all of your joints uh yes handle external load because you know whether you want to be picking up weights or not is irrelevant uh you do have to pick things up in day-to-day life so you know you do have to handle some degree of external load You should have some competence with your own body weight, right, to get yourself down to the ground and back up. Those are all factors that will play into your long-term health, and we we do know that. 
well at this point. So when I say variability, it's in part in the stimulus that you're taking on um, and being able to express all facets of your body and your physiology, but it's also knowing all the gears in which you can work. So if you think of a bike, most people who aren't trained on a bike will get a bike and <laughs> crank to the highest gear. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> I may have Which, done that the other day. Uh, yeah, the other month you've retrained it. Uh, so we see this all the time is that because generalizations, particularly online, say that you have to go high, high intensity in whatever you're doing, whether we're talking about weights or endurance or anything, you have to go high intensity. Even in yoga, they, they do, it's, it's not all yoga, but some power flow. No, but some online will, will show you the extreme positions. And there are a lot of yoga instructors who've spoken out against that. It's like that shouldn't be the end goal for a lot of, uh, you know, p humans who are trying to be really good generalists. So, again, that's an intensity factor. Uh, and because we keep pushing these intensity factors, people have forgotten that there are a lot of other gears in which they can operate their bike. And we try to help people find all those other gears. Any cyclist knows that if you're going to last a race, you have to know how to use those gears because it's optimizing your physiology throughout the course of the race. If you are always cranking, you are going to gas out. And we see that when people take on, you know, P90X, which still is still kicking around. Big like time. How, however many years later, 15 years later, I don't know. It's been a hot minute. Intensity is a thing that I think we need to realize it's, it, there's a, what's the word? Sorry, brain fart. Perceived intensity, there you go. Perceived, perceived intensity. Perceived intensity. Intensity can be perceived is what I was trying to get at. Meaning there are multiple variables that dictate whether something is intense mm -hmm. enough for you. And mm -hmm. more importantly, you shouldn't always be pushing right to the end of the end of that range all of the time because you are going to burn out and you're not actually able to train all your gears, which is to say that you are also able to train all of your generalist uh, capacities. So intensity can be based on time, it can be based on the type of movement you're undertaking, whether it's a body weight skill, whether it's a weighted skill, it can be based on total volume that day. Intensity can also be dictated, we spoke about inputs and outputs in one of our last podcasts, it can be dictated by all of those other life inputs and outputs. So intensity is variable, it's perceived, and we need to be able to operate at many, many, many different intensities if we want to be good generalists and also if we don't want to burn out of any one way of doing things. Yeah, and I think that was, as I kind of graduated out of comp competition, um, trying to figure out what an appropriate amount of intensity was for me was very difficult because I was always very much, you know, I had a competition coming up and I knew the weights I had to lift. I knew how much intensity was involved with that. So during my work workout sessions, it was always pretty well dictated of what I needed to push towards so that my tissues were adapted and I was strong enough to handle the challenge. So getting out of that, it was really hard to figure out. And I, I feel like I'm in a much better place now, but it's, again, like when you have strict numbers thrown at you or, you know, you're told that you have to, you know, no pain, no gain kind of thing and just push, push, push. Again, it, there's a, a rate of limiting returns there, let's just say. The body can only go so far. So as Freya said, you need those different gears. Yeah, we need variability. Yeah, exactly. And so on the flip side, if we kind of go over to the nutrition, one of the things I wanted to touch on today was the generalization that being lean means being healthy. 
I'm not going to hammer this point to death because we have touched base on this in other podcasts. Um, so we have said this before, but again, just because someone, you know, looks lean doesn't mean that they are healthy. Many super lean people have underlying health issues. Um, they might not tell you about them. They might even not know about them at the time, as was my case when I was younger and competing in strongman. I didn't even know half the story of what was going on. Um, and again, many young athletes, uh, young trainers will be super lean and they'll be eating maybe not so great. And that's because when they're super active, they can get away with eating a lot of rubbish food and they can say, oh no, you can absolutely eat these foods and be healthy and achieve your goals. But if you're older and you don't move as much, the story is totally different for you. So you have to understand these generalizations don't carry over to absolutely everyone. I mean, personally, I'm very lucky. I do walk around fairly lean. I didn't have obese parents. I'm passionate about movement and physical activity, and I always have been. A lot of people don't have that same story. A lot of people are passionate about reading and writing and other things that aren't so active, and they might have been born with obese parents, and it's just, it's, a, it's an uphill battle, so everyone has a different story. So this is where generalizations do not make a lot of sense, and it's really just extremes where we find the problem here. So if you are morbidly obese, we know that that carries with it health factors. You can't be morbidly obese and be perfectly healthy. It is just not possible. On the flip side, being incredibly underweight, you're going to have health problems there as well. So it's these big extremes, but most people who come to me as a nutrition coach want to lose about 15 to 30 pounds, and many of them are already a super healthy weight within where they're at. So there, that's just understanding, like, why are we chasing that 15 to 30 pounds? And it's usually the generalization that you have to be lean to be, you know, whether that's beautiful or healthy or whatever it is. But these are generalizations that, again, they'll lead to mental health issues. And they're, you're chasing something that is not actually true. So understand that weight is not the only metric to chase. What do you want to feel and what do you want your body to be able to do? And then work from that to create the plan that really works for you. So speaking of what you're feeling, Freya, um, I know you spoke about intensity, but what about frequency? Well, with frequency, uh, obviously that can go hand in hand. The more frequently you train, it changes the intensity. They are variables that work together. And with frequency, again, we have a lot of the generalizations that we see out there published in newspapers, in magazines, online, um, from Instagram Institute and YouTube University are pitching two different extremes. So the one extreme is on the low end. We're like, you only, the most recent article I saw was like, you only need to exercise 13 minutes twice a week and you will be healthy. Amazing. <laughs> I'm out. And then on the other hand, there's the there's the side of it like where I need to train with intensity at breakneck speed six to seven times uh, a week or I need to do doubles, or I need to do weights and then three hours of cardio, or, or what have you. So you have, you have both extremes. On the one hand, I would hate that if somebody was doing absolutely nothing, so they, they were living a sedentary life where they had really little to no movement dose and didn't add in that 13 minutes twice a week. I would love for them to at least do that. That's great uh, as, a, as a starting point. It's better than nothing. Does it mean you're going to be super healthy? No, <laughs> not at all. Uh, and it really depends what part of health are we measuring, right? Are we really taking into account how you feel, how your body feels? Because I can guarantee if you live a sedentary life, that is to say a lot of people spend more time sitting than they do uh, moving in any sort of way, not an exercise way, like just ambulation and whatnot. Uh, 
then your joints aren't going to feel super hot as you age. We just, we know that. So 13 minutes can't account for, however, 360 hours of combined sitting and lying down. On the other hand, uh, we have people who overtrain and they're afraid to reduce their training. So you've got one hand where they think, okay, I'm a little afraid of exercise and movement, but hey, I can be perfectly healthy with 13 minutes. I'll do that. Then you have the other hand where, for whatever reason, they have been told and led to believe that they need to train that often for health. And they're afraid to reduce the amount because they don't know what they'll feel like at less, at, at less of an input. And usually what happens, and I see this a lot with coaches, and we've been there, so guilty as charged, mm-hmm. is we're so used to feeling a little bit like we're, not, we're used to not ever feeling fully recovered that we don't even realize we're not fully recovered. That. We're not used to feeling like we end the day with any energy. We're used to feeling like we end the day and we're completely bagged. And a lot of people operate this way, that where they're physically bagged at the end of the day. And they've equated that because it's gone on so long to normalcy. And so, you know, that, that requires some recalibration downwards. On the other hand, they, you know, when you don't do much, your body is, you might feel tired, but it's tired and wired and your body has had no input. So we want people to understand that you can do more frequency when you're recovering really well from it, when all your life demands are met, when everything is sound and when it makes sense because you're using variable types of movement to accomplish that six or seven days a week. Like you have some movements that are really low gear and other days where it's a higher gear. There should be variability there. On the other hand of things, if the vast majority of your day is sedentary, then the goal is to start incorporating gentle movement breaks, five minutes at a time to break up your day. And because again, we're just chasing a feeling and feeling better is usually what people ask for, but we ask them to really identify better. So the generalizations of you just need 13 minutes twice a week, you or the other extreme are not really addressing the variability. And again, depends on age, depends on athletic background, depends on your body and its injury history, depends on any conditions that you may have. Uh, So it depends on, and it depends on all of the other inputs that we've touched on in the last podcast. So again, variability and not marrying yourself to a specific recipe because it changes over time. What I could do when I was 18 is totally different than what I could do when I was 28 and it's completely different than what I can do now in terms of overall volume and stuff. Life changes, so your recipe for what you do for your body to support its well-being also changes over time. Yeah, exactly. And I know this is going to uh, segue really nicely into what I'm about to speak to, but again, it's about understanding your baseline and where you're at and, and moving from there instead of using these generic plans. And that is right on point with the concept or generalization that calories in, calories out is an exact science. And that calorie counting is the only way to control your weight. So again, this is always a bit of a loaded topic and yes, energy balance is king for gaining weight or losing weight. That is, that is a golden rule. That is an unbreakable rule is very important. But trying to control that precisely by counting calories, and especially just by only counting calories and doing nothing else to try and control it, I mean, it's a fool's errand to do that. And so the reasons it's a fool's errand, which means that trying to do it is just, it's completely fruitless. You'll never actually get a, get a control over that is just that every single body 
is different metabolically. And every day, my body will be different metabolically based on how I slept, based on how I moved, based on, you know, did I drink alcohol or you know, did I have caffeine or am I stressed out or, you know, what trauma am I dealing with today? There's all these different variables that day to day are going to change things. So if I try and just white knuckle my calories and think that that's going to, you know, give me everything that I need, it's simply not going to work. Anybody who has tried this in the past probably understands that it does work for a few weeks maybe, and then suddenly you plateau, and inevitably you get tired of trying to do it because it, it, you can't go any further, and then you'll slowly gain the weight back. And that is just what will always happen. So the specificity of calorie counting has a place for people who are, for example, figure athletes, so bodybuilders who are trying to cut, um, get to a certain physique for a show. And if you ask bodybuilders, you'll know that they don't walk around at 4% body fat year-round. They cut to peak for a show once, maybe twice a year, and then they balloon back up, (laughs) typically 20, maybe 30 pounds, and then they'll restart that process. But it's an athlete trying to achieve a goal. Same thing with weight-class athletes. When I was competing in strongman, I had to cut weight. I needed to know where my calories were to get it down for a certain point. But it is a temporary change that you can achieve before things bounce back. It's not a long-term strategy. So generalized, or for a generalist, individualized approach is to understand the energy needs of your body. So instead of just saying, oh, here's a plan online, I hear 1,300 calories is what I need to lose weight, and it's fascinating, isn't it? 1,300 calories is something that people still come to me with saying that's how many calories they're consuming, and they don't know why they're not losing weight. And I mean, I heard that back when I was 20. It's incredible that that has stayed around because that's apparently how much you need to lose a pound of fat or something. I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, where came they were from. saying like cut five hundred a day for X yeah. number of days, and mm-hmm. and then eventually everyone gets down to like twelve hundred or something. Yeah, um, it's very hard. It's to it's fascinating too because it's like okay, but but like then what? Like it assumes you, what, we're all the same type yeah. of body, and you get to that, and then <laughs> what? Like well. You can't just cut forever. You, you, that's when you disappear, right? You understand that eventually if you just take away all the food, you just, you will die. It's, it's when your body just overrides it. Yeah, you can't just keep on cutting calories. It's, it's not what that works. And so food, it, food intake is just one toggle that you can, can switch to lose weight. And if you're going to try and impact that, then instead of just saying, hey, 1,300 calories, let's count and white knuckle and go from there, what I would recommend to people is that, okay, how do you normally eat? track literally track your food for a week and not even in terms of calories track your food volume what is the food volume and the types of food you typically eat and honest honestly track that for a week and then the easiest thing from there is the following week why don't you take away a little bit of that food volume just like just take away like one snack for example a day and then see how much weight that can lose you don't have to have numbers you just have to be honest with what are your habits and start by changing one of those little habits at a time specifically regarding food So that is a way you can control that food aspect of things. Now, other ways you can impact that energy balance, instead of focusing on the food volume, for example, you can think about replacing foods that you're eating that might be a little more calorically dense, so high-calorie foods that might be processed, and replacing those with a whole food that might be high in fiber, for example. Because without even counting the calories then, you are then giving your body more actual nutrients. You're going to get more... Uh, more hunger signals that are actually going to be true, as we mentioned in our inputs outputs podcast. Um, and you're going to have, you know, if you switch from a Twinkie to an apple, for example, which might even be the same amount of calories, you're going to spend more calories digesting that apple. 
So just by changing food types, not even food volume, you can alter that food toggle as well. So those are two strategies for food. Other things that you can do without even touching food if you want to care about your, your energy balance, sleep is a massive one. So if you're not getting restful sleep or enough sleep, focus up on the sleep for a bit. So if you go from getting five or six hours of sleep per night and then you get that up to six, seven, eight hours, you're going to increase your metabolic rate over the following day. So you might not even alter your diet and you'll find that you can lose weight just by addressing your sleep. Another one about sleep is, you know, a lot of people tend to drink alcohol, even if it's just a couple drinks before bed. And if you drink a couple drinks before bed, even though it's, you know, it's not that much alcohol, it is enough to delay that first sleep uh, cycle. And then that is going to impair your sleep, even if you're getting eight hours. So alcohol is a huge input that can have a massive input, uh, sorry, a massive uh, impact on your overall metabolic rate if you're trying to toggle that, that weight loss. And another one you can do is meal timing. So if you skip breakfast, the research has shown that you're going to eat more later in the day. And even further to that, you're going to stop moving. So even fidgeting, you'll stop fidgeting. If you don't eat breakfast, your body will stop doing little things every day, or you'll be less inclined to take the stairs instead of taking the elevator. Your, the brain is incredibly smart at conserving energy. So you, even just by addressing your meal timing, you can address those toggles, not even talking about what you're eating. And then finally, and Freya, this will go right back into uh, ball in your court here, but daily movement, of course. Move daily, daily movement. And this is one where, again, we're not talking about intense exercise, but it's just throughout the day. Like, how much do you actually move? You know, how much do you, <laughs> you know, shake your leg when you're sitting at the table and have Freya yell at you for shaking your leg? Those little things have a massive impact. I, I think I've said massive impact about 12 times here, yep. and I apologize. Yep. It has a very important and meaningful impact on, you know, your weight loss. So daily movement, Freya, regarding that, is there a generalization about that? Um, well, I think <laughs> it's more about types of movement, and you make me sound horrible. Like, she yells at me. <laughs> I fidget a lot. It's mostly when we're on the same surface mm -hmm. and all of a sudden mm -hmm. I can mm -hmm. feel myself like shaking. I'm like, what is happening? I look over and Dane's like shaking both his yeah. legs. That's usually when I just put my hand on his knee and ask him to just settle down. I'm like ADHD Captain Fidget and she's so still and calm. So I got yin and yang, right? You play off each other, but I just, I have to be more grounded. I, I Bring fidget, it down. I fidget differently. Yes, <laughs> yes, true. fidget differently. Uh, so, so yeah, in terms of generalizations, we posted earlier this week, or maybe it was last week, about walking and how some people have sort of, weirdly enough, in the fitness industry said that walking doesn't count as exercise. And the only reason that we could rationalize why they might have said something like that for a person who is able to walk. Like, if you're able to walk, walking is a valuable thing to do. If you're not able to walk, well, obviously, that's like a moot point. We would find other means to help you move. You can still be okay. Yeah, so it, but they were, you know, the, the reason I can see them thinking that it, on the fitness spectrum rather than the health spectrum, that it doesn't count is if they're doing things just for calories, which is a really, a way that we uh, don't train people, don't train ourselves. And if anyone comes in with that mentality, we try to uh, find ways to switch gears on that because doing things for calories and saying, oh, I'm going to, do this strength training class, it's going to burn this many calories. We don't actually know that. Uh, and same thing with running. You should do that to burn calories. Also, don't know that. The, in fact, the more efficient you get at endurance activity, 
the less calories you burn because our body is all about efficiency. So at the beginning of my cycling season, I can go out for a long ride and come back after a few hours and feel like I am starving. Mm -hmm. By the end of the season, I'm going out for a longer ride, so say five hours, working at a higher output, meaning my wattage speed, whatnot, is, is higher, and eat the same as I did earlier in the season when I did less work. It's all about adaptation, so our systems are adaptable. So doing something for calories is, is not a great filter. I'd rather somebody do something because they enjoy it than do it for a caloric count that we know is grossly inaccurate. I know you used to be able to like hold onto the treadmill handles and it would tell you this how many calories you'd burn. I'm like, really? How do you know? And I just so just a quick reminder too, like even if you have a fancy watch or you're doing like again, all these counts are, are again, they're still gonna be very much ballpark. And so it's just like getting attached to numbers takes you away from what your body's doing. Yeah, it's a metric that we just don't want people to, no. to really focus on. So on that note, though, um, and in the in light of generalizations versus being a generalist, generalizations that we see and hear all the time because clients will come in with these beliefs that have been taught to them from other coaches or from someone they follow online or whatnot, is the first one is that if you're a person who's trying to maintain your muscle mass, running is awful. Uh, and then on the flip side, if you don't want to get bulky, then you better not lift weight. And so those are a couple different extremes, and I'm, yes, mocking them because both of them are inaccurate, and quite frankly, they're often told to people to discourage them from doing something they love to do. Somebody comes in and says, I love running, then great, we're going to give them other exercises to improve their variability of physiological expression, finding other things they like to do, and ensuring that they can run as long as they are able to, and as long as they enjoy it still. So... First of all, with running, it's not the only way to do cardio. You do need cardiovascular health, and I uh, don't run anymore. Unfortunately, had to stop when I was 30 for, for many health reasons. I loved it at the, at the time, and I was also a testament to somebody who didn't run five days a week but still placed well in races because I trained my cardiovascular system concurrently and trained the same tissues that were required for running gait and to tolerate running. So again, it goes back to we can strategically using like conjugate models, use a bunch of different tools to still make you decently good at something. It's not like you're a world-class athlete that does require specificity, but if you really enjoy something, then you should be adding in other variables to make it happen. If you hate running, then why are you running? <laughs> Don't run. I had a, we had a lovely woman uh, pick up running because she thought that it would give her a certain body type, but she hated it. So all you're telling your body is that, like, this sucks. And your body's telling you, this sucks. So there's no, you don't have to, if you don't like running, don't run. You can do so many other things for your heart health and lung health. And if you take, say you really like body weight movements and weights, well, you can do five of them in a row in a circuit with variable tempos. Sorry, that's cardinal. <laughs> Guys, we saw cardinal outside. <laughs> Sorry, the male and female are right there. Okay. <laughs> Um, glad we got that on And tape. we're back. And we're back. Back in the room. Uh, <laughs> so point is, if you like body weight and weighted things, you can take a few different exercises there, uh, change up the tempos, change up the reps and sets, and doing them back to back, especially with lower rest times, even if you're using medium and slow tempos, will get you a cardiovascular impact or effect. Cycling, obviously an endurance sport, 
you get cardio that way, whether it's leisure or purposeful, like pace-wise, time-wise competing. Uh, swimming, same thing. So there are so many ways in which you can get a cardiovascular response that to just see running as the only outlet is, is not great because not everyone likes that. Not everyone really has the t- joint tolerance for that. So it's just not necessary. Um, on the flip side, a lot of people blame cardio will make you lose all your muscle mass. And so that's on the side of things where, like, weight is the only way. Uh, I mean, external weight, external low, the barbells, kettlebells, dumbbells. There's the belief there and the generalization that it's the only way you can gain muscle mass. And that's not accurate. Yes, if you want to be a competitive bodybuilder or a strongman athlete, yes, you're going to have to lift a lot of external weight. Obviously, it's the sport. But it's not the only way to gain muscle mass. Lifting weights is not going to necessarily equate being bulky. And just because you like lifting weights doesn't mean you can't also like doing cardiovascular things. And we've seen, like, we've been at many different types of competitions, um, strongman, CrossFit, and powerlifting, where you see someone do a really impressive feat and then they walk away and they're huffing and puffing because they can't walk like the 50 meters away from where the the um, actual event was. And that's troubling because that's a person that maybe at some point generalization-wise thought that they would get really, really good at their sport and in order to still be good at their sport, they needed to not do anything that elicited a cardiovascular response. And we've seen a lot of uh, strongman athletes get hurt because of that. Because strongman yes. has an endurance component. You have many different events. A lot of them last for at least 60 seconds. So it's multiple sprint type things with high reps. That's cardio. <laughs> so we've seen athletes prep in a more um, like bodybuilding, low, well, bodybuilders do a lot of cardio. That's a bad example. But just like strength training side of things without any cardio. And then within the third event of a six event uh, strongman competition, they've torn their patellar tendon or their calf is shot because they haven't actually had to do some of the running events. They're, again, they're short sprints, but with a lot of weight on your back, they haven't had to do any of those running events with minimal rest mm-hmm. from the last thing they did. So with everything, if you want to be a good generalist, really do find the things you love that help you express multiple facets. Don't write one thing off just because somebody told you, oh, that's bad for muscle gains or, oh, that's bad, you're going to get bulky if we're talking about the weight side of things. Having a good generalist base means that you can handle some external load uh, even if you don't train with it. So you can do a lot of body weight skills and all depending on those intensity variables we, we listed off earlier and depending on the exercises you decide to do, that can change your muscle mass gain. We know a lot of people who do mostly body weight and calisthenics and they are able to gain mass, not in a bodybuilding um, strongman way, but we're talking about health first and generalist expression of, of health and strength. So anyway, the extremes... Don't do an exercise for calories is the end point. Walking, if you're able to walk, is always going to be good always. because you need that until the day you are no longer alive on this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't walk, don't worry about it. That's also not going to be a horrible thing. Like There are other things you can do for your physiology that are positive to you, but don't ever vilify an exercise because you think it's going to ruin your gains for something else or, you know... It's just there are a lot of weird generalist things. If they are vilifying any one domain of movement, they're probably incorrect. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and as a <clears throat> as a strongman athlete, I remember you know they're just memes kind of <laughs> growing up in the strongman industry. Industry, you call it that hobby. I mean, no, but there's always memes of how like you know cardio Community? would make you lose your gains, and we joked about how you know it was a waste of time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I learned pretty quickly once I was at a high level that that was awful advice and it was just not true. And the best athletes were always the ones who had the best health and cardiovascular endurance. Um, and whenever I coach cl- clients, I'm always encouraging them to walk on off days for recovery and to make sure I program in some cardio for them. And I always have them push back at the beginning and then they realize why it's so important. So even the elite athletes do need a little bit of that generalized, uh, generalist feedback. <laughs> Anyway, back to the nutrition side of things. Another generalization that is rampant is what I like to call picking on specific nutrients. So all carbs are bad, or all animal products are bad, or fats are bad, or protein is bad, whatever. And that is just always going to get somebody in trouble long term. If your goal is health, if your goal is weight loss, it doesn't matter. There's none of those concepts are founded in science um even anecdotal evidence in my experience with clients they're just they're just not gonna end up in uh, good results so for a generalist somebody who cares about their health longevity weight loss a diverse diet is going to lead you to better health and resiliency it's going to give you better gut bacteria diversity if you want to look at that research and again that leads to a better immunity and then you can you know train more you can do the things you like more and you'll be healthier overall a lot of people will Vilify carbs because they're trying to lose weight and hashtag insulin. That is insane. We need insulin. Insulin is very important to get things out of the bloodstream so we do not die. Uh, Do not vilify insulin. (laughs) Um, Elimination diets are another place where people get themselves in trouble. They'll have a gut problem and then they'll want to eliminate something to try and get rid of that. So people will typically eliminate a lot of things and then kind of get caught in this place where they're just not sure what was causing the problem. And so they'll just keep those things eliminated because they don't want to risk going back to the place they were. Elimination diets are meant to be temporary and you're supposed to be reintroducing as many of the foods as possible uh, uh, you know, for an end goal. You do not want to limit foods unless your body is actually allergic to them or they cause a really bad impact to your body. I know the EDS population and HSC population, this is a, a much more in-depth topic and it, it is, that's the population that elimination diets are really important to do correctly. Um, but again, especially with those populations and especially for gut health, you need to reintroduce as many foods as possible for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would say I was put on through the process of all my nutritional digestive grief with, uh, before we really had any, um, labels that gave us the principles with which to understand my gut function. Once like the label itself is one thing it's more understanding okay what's behind like what's the principle oh mm-hmm. this is the way the tissues built oh the, these are things that can occur in the gut that is what helped but in the process before all that was known um, tons of elimination diets were proposed mm-hmm. and it was frustrating to me as a person because it's like okay what do I eat now like I can't I'm reacting to celery I'm reacting to water now I'm reacting to chicken I was like what the hell <laughs> um I'm gonna become a breathitarian <laughs> like what uh and I like food so the elimination diets are crucial be- because especially when they were first coming about and we we're doing a lot of um you know allergen testing and things like that you end up eliminating 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 without really realizing that 
some of those things don't need to be eliminated long or sorry eliminated long term uh, some of them just need to be temporarily taken mm-hmm. out. Some of them do need to be taken out long term, and that will be dependent on the individual for sure. And then also there's the overriding motility, your overall movement, and stress. Because stress on an EDS gut, <laughs> on any gut, I should say, but especially on an EDS one um, or HSD one, is is brutal. So you end up... Yeah, you, you end up sometimes eliminating way more than you actually need to because you're reacting to food mm-hmm. because of the stress state you are in as opposed to what the food is actually comprised of. And the less you tolerate, the more reactive you get. So that's something to go through with a practitioner because especially if you're somebody who's getting widespread hives or anaphylaxis, uh, you know, obviously don't just randomly go introduce <laughs> everything and, and wind up in ER with a ton of epinephrine. Do not do being uh, stuck in you that's that's a recipe for horrible trauma but if you do an elimination diet it can be very helpful do it with a practitioner that knows mm-hmm. what they're doing and that knows about mast cell activation syndrome and knows about the rules of eds and that kind of thing so yeah elimination diets can be extremely helpful when done properly when they are just done without the proper filter they usually result in a lot of people thinking that they are intolerant and or allergic to a ton of foods and then we watch their whole system crash. Yeah, and and usually when people are eliminating or are getting taking the stance that, for example, carbs are bad. I don't eat carbs now. I do keto, um, or you know, I'm I go I'm vegan now because animal products are bad for the heart or something like that. Um, they're usually doing this out of a place of fear. Um, fear is typically the driver, um, whether that's fear of weight gain um, or fear of sickness. Um, you know, fear of, you know, just not feeling good in the body. I mean, carbs are, are, the, are the key one that people really do vilify these days. And especially on the note of, of carbs, it's not all carbs are created equal. It's so important to remind people of that. You know, a potato, a sweet potato, rice, you know, re- fruit, real, real food does not have the same impact as going and eating a Twinkie. It's, uh, they're very different types of foods. One contains a lot of nutrients and the other contains toxins, frankly. So... Again, there's to say, you know, go just eat more real food. I mean, I understand that that is generally good advice. Like it's, it's good for the human body, but I also know that comes from a place of privilege. Like you have to have access to more real food and understand what foods are what and what they do to the body. Um, but I'll go back to, you know, if, if you have the privilege to say all carbs are bad and go on that kind of diet, uh, then you do have the privilege to try and increase your food quality as well. So for that kind of population who is leaving, you know, it's not coming from a place of judgment, but it's going to check into why are you thinking that these foods are bad? Why are all carbs bad? Where did that come from? Does it come from a place of fear? You know, did you get really sick from eating something once? Did you, do you feel like, you know, you get puffy when you have carbs? Like dig into where that's coming from and then figure out, you know, what sources may be the ones that are giving you issues. Typically you'll find they're the ultra processed ones and then try and develop a better relationship with those types of foods and see what benefits can they bring you because ultimately chase again it comes back to what are the feelings you want to feel in your body and what do you want your body to be able to do and if you can keep going back to that you're going to feel a lot better in your body and you're going to get rid of some of these fears that lead to some of these generalizations that all carbs are bad for example yeah well and on the topic of you know we've mentioned a few things we're vilifying is the never and always. Mm-hmm. So if you see a generalization that's like, never do this, never eat this, or always eat this, or always do this, there's probably something else that you need to look at there. 
And these days we see a lot more of that than I would say even uh, like 10 years ago. And I'm just going to straight up blame social media for that. I'm okay with that. That's reasonable. <laughs> yeah. I concur. Um, I, I do. <laughs> yeah. I do appreciate that on social media, um, there's a curiosity, you know, some people can go there and get inspired. Um, you, you know, sometimes there's a curiosity that they can go on there and, and find something to think about or to go search about. And I'm totally fine with that. It's the always and never that drives me a little bit nuts because a lot of those a lot of those statements have been around for way too long, first of all. Oh, yeah. Um, and they're often paired with someone who knows just enough technical detail about anatomy to sound smart. Um, or maybe they know a lot. Maybe they even have a title, uh, you know, at like academically. Um, and then they pair, they inevitably put up like a, a, a graphic from, you know, this is your scapula and you've got the pictures of the muscles and people are immediately... Um, perhaps not impressed, but they're bought in. They're like, oh, this person clearly knows some technical terms. They must be correct. Fancy. I'm going to follow them because it's fancy. And it sounds right. Well, the only reason it sounds right is because they told you it was right. And because if you don't have enough knowledge about those things that they're speaking to, then you don't know how to contrast that with something like with an opposite hypothesis. And so that anytime somebody is saying always do this or never do that, I'm going to give you a few examples that have stuck around way too long. One is like knees beyond toes. Never let your knees go beyond toes. It's just wrong and it won't die because it's still being taught <laughs> in certain levels. Uh, your knee is allowed to go beyond your toes. Whether you're on a full flat foot and expressing your maximal ankle dorsiflexion, that means um, how much range of motion if this is my foot. Dorsiflexion is your knee traveling forward this way this angle that's your dorsiflexion i just bumped the mic oh no <laughs> anyway so but even if you're on your toes and so what you're on the ball of your foot and you're in like a, a humid ready position to sprint forward is that really bad for your knees i think it's only bad for your knees if your knees don't know how to be a knee anymore and i mean that sincerely because some some people do lose function at certain joints to the point where yeah that's not where we start maybe uh, we teach your knee how to be a knee but ultimately if your ankle's an ankle and you have dorsiflexion that allows your knee to travel beyond your toes that's okay mm -hmm. um the next one is like pelvic tuck you know the way to sort of fix, I'm going to use the term fix, you don't fix, uh, the way to fix your anterior tilt, so imagine like a sway back position, is to then tuck your pelvis under. Well, that's not how your pelvis works. Not only that, you're going to end up like kind of fixing your the head of your femur, and it's just going to be hard, because if you're in an anterior tilt, chances are high that your, uh, well, no, your femur is internally rotated. You look downstream, you're probably in an everted ankle position so you're you're flattening your your foot out and rotating it outwards not the same as, as pronation uh and so all of that stacks together so yeah you're not in an optimal position but we can't just fix it by tucking your pelvis under also that's not great for your low back so we need to address the whole body and it's not that one's bad and the other one's better it's both you need access to all ranges i want to be able to tilt into an anterior tilt and then also posterior that's joint expressing a joint or joints sorry expressing the range of motion and i should have tolerance of all of those with that there's also the you should always pull your shoulders back and down and we had an athlete recently ask he's like hey my uh 
person, I'm just going to say person, health practitioner was helping him, uh, said that I need to pull my shoulder blades back like this to improve my posture. Well, his whole spine hadn't changed. All he'd done was jam the shoulder blades back, and he expressed that it wasn't super comfortable, and they'd get really achy and tired. And to me, there's no reason why anyone should be jamming their shoulders back. If you're stuck in this direction, like you're lit legitimately stuck here meaning your body can't also express an opposing posture or never mind extension but like even a more neutral one um, then we just need to give your body more options we need to teach your joints where all of their ranges can be your posture will sort itself out it's we don't fix a posture by trying to jam the body the opposite direction based on an ideal that we want to establish as humans mm -hmm. I want somebody to be able to slouch, to be able to stand up, to be able to extend, to be able to lean, to laterally flex. The point is you shouldn't be stuck in any one way and trying to address a posture that's not serving your body by trying to force it the opposite way will generally just result in muscle fatigue and frustration and people giving up. It's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. So there's the pelvic tuck, there's the knee over toes thing. Uh, there's the... Uh, like there are, there are a number of different things that, that we see all the time in terms of back health. So there's the, you should never round your back or your spine should always be neutral. And thankfully there are also a lot of angry Twitter feeds. I tend not to go on Twitter because everyone's angry. So angry. But there are a lot of feeds that debate that uh, quite incessantly and it's because it's true. It mm -hmm. really, really depends. And, and that's where generalizations don't work. You know, I had somebody who'd had um, extreme back pain come in and say that he listened to a podcast with Stu McGill who's a back health expert here in, in Canada and that because of that he had decided to do kettlebell swings to fix his back and what did I think of that because it actually made him worse well Wild. I know that he didn't tell everyone I know he did not go did tell not. everyone to go do kettlebell swings nope. I know that um, and I know the context in which he discusses kettlebell swings and the reflexive reactivity of the trunk and trying to teach all of the trunk muscles to be reflexively uh, strong again because that is something that needs to be retrained in somebody with back pain because they tend to be delayed in uh, contraction and then once they do contract they're delayed in relaxation so a kettlebell swing has a dynamic of of tension and relaxation so that's what he would have been speaking to the way this client interpreted it was, hey, kettlebell swing's going to fix my back. And it's like, mm, no, if you don't know how to use your hips, it's not the case. Mm -hmm. So that's where any generalization, and, and this taps into people's fear. People are fearful of hurting themselves, and rightfully so. People in pain tend to have even more, I'm going to say apprehension, because it's not always fear, but they'll have apprehension about things. So then if they see somebody who's posted this anatomical diagram and is saying, never do this, because you're going to hurt this body part, or always do this, like always do back bridges to help your back, also not appropriate. It always and never should always make you, oops, there you go, I just said always. If you see always or never, ask. Mm -hmm. Ask why that, and then go Google the opposite thing. Yes. I don't generally encourage people to Google a ton about biomechanics because usually they'll find pathological reports and uh, misinterpret that as, as we're all doomed, they're all right, <laughs> we're breaking down. That's usually when people are studying things. Um, you know, we should really do a full podcast on some of these like specific myths. That's coming up in a few weeks. That's about gym exercises and, and stuff. A anyway, no one, if we haven't met you, if somebody hasn't met you and, and knows your history, 
even if they're saying things that sound like you, so back pain, for example, even if they're saying, if you've had back pain, never do these five things and always do these five things, it should still give you pause mm -hmm. because if 80, probably more percent of our population has experienced back pain, we're not homogenous. That 80% of our population is comprised of very different people from very different age groups, walks of life, capacity, capability, and so on. So it doesn't work to then say never. And if it's fear-based advice, it has no place. If, if they're telling you you should never bend over, well, sorry, but your spine is a whole bunch of joints stacked up. If we were not built to ever flex it, we'd probably just have one mm -hmm. fused bone. That would be interesting. <laughs> Anyway, that wouldn't know. work out for us. How would we fit in a uterus? I don't think that would work. Anyway, <laughs> it's a good question, though, uh, right? <laughs> female, <laughs> the female pelvis would have to be built a little bit differently, too, I believe. But the female torso, well, all torsos would be crazy long to facilitate. I'll make an illustration later. <laughs> Check out our Instagram. Feed. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I think you wanted to speak to about identity as well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So with all of that, uh, we do have to also challenge, like with generalizations, um, some people put themselves in their own generalization. It's not taught from anything they've read anywhere. They've just sort of fallen into their own generalization by identifying with something that they do. Now, what I mean by this is if you identify as someone who... I'm just going to say, say you do a certain type of lifting five days a week and it's within a community and you identify as that's who you are and that's what you do and you identify it yourself as it, not you do this, you are this, I am a blank. That's risky, what we see time and time again because we help so many people with injuries, that's often how many people are, are referred or find us, is they've had a health event. So that health event's gonna challenge their identity because invariably there's something they've been doing frequently that's not serving them. And that can have to do with their activity and if they've identified as their activity, I'm a yogi, I'm a power lifter, I'm a runner, I'm a cyclist, I'm a whatever, like just fill in the blank that when we over-identify with it and when we've lost variabilities, we've lost the capacity to be a generalist with our body. Our body is like literally only able to do that, that thing well, and live our daily life. Mm -hmm. um, and when we cannot express these other ways of, of moving and, and being comfortable in our body and maybe variability in terms of frequency and intensity like we touched on earlier, that makes for a really tricky tra transition because when we identify as what we do when we are not like pro athletes and stuff, and this is something pro athletes, you know, have a, have a hard time with when they mm -hmm. eventually retire. It's a, a huge shift for many reasons, but for those of us, if we are what I'm going to just term like general population and we're just doing this thing for fun, but we are very strongly identified as the thing if a health event comes up that interrupts our ability to do the thing, it is going to be harder to handle if we have literally no other variability to fall back on. Mm -hmm. And this is something, uh, after I left the world of dance, I was trying to figure out kind of what else to do because I love moving, always moved. It's actually one of the ways I, you know, subconsciously manage pain was by constantly pacing or fidgeting or standing um, or changing levels uh, as I studied and things like that. But as I tried to discover other ways of moving, 
variability was always the most helpful. Anytime I tried to overly specialize in one domain, I tended to get hurt. Mm -hmm. And there are many times when I've had to fully stop one way of moving, but which can be hard because a full stop is like a full stop on a couple things for life for me. It's not that I can't do them, but if I do them, I'm going to expire certain joints sooner. And so it's a choice and everyone has choice or I'm going to end up wearing an exoskeleton to be able to do the thing. And as cool as that sounds, I'm not ready to be like a RoboCop thing. So cool though. No. <laughs> Meet more. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, the point is like, my goal was to never get roped into one way of doing things because it, it, you're going to potentially lose the capacity to do that thing at some point in time, maybe temporarily for a week, maybe for six months, maybe for a couple years, maybe permanently, but whatever it is, if you have other ways of moving to fall back on as well, it's way easier to be positive, to stay with the process, to, you know, find joy in movement in other ways. So I have, uh, obviously, uh, apart from dance, uh, raced, did Muay Thai. These are things that I've done, like, with coaches uh, for longer term. I've obviously dabbled in a bunch of other things. Rock climbing, which I loved, but, again, had to stop for a few years because of my spine and shoulder. We'll get back to that as soon as they're open. Swimming, a uh, thing I did, stopped doing, able to do it again. Cycling. Uh, all the body weight stuff with animal flow and and uh, also ring work. So all of those things mean that no matter the day, I have something usually that's within my access physically to be able mm -hmm. to do. So depending on what gear I'm in, to bring it full circle back to the intensity piece, depending on what gear my body's in that day, whether it can push harder or whether it really needs a little bit more of like a gentle um, workout. Caress. Or, or just, what? Gentle caress. Sure. Yeah, that <laughs> weirdo. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so I I can tap into those different gears, and really we try to help people find other ways of expressing their physiology. And you know, we're not forcing certain types of movement on movements on people at all. It's to give them variability because we know it's better for their resilience long term. We know it's better for tissue tolerance long term to not just like hammer home one way of doing things. And we know it can help their physical and mental health, especially if an injury mm -hmm. ever comes up in their life. And um, it's just more ways to access fun depending on what gear you need to be in that day. Yeah, I'm, I'm, when I wrote the original Strongman book, that was a passage I put in specifically, um, just because that's something I, I see happening a lot within the sport of Strongman, is it's not people who just kind of like competing in Strongman, it's like, I am Strongman. Like, it's, it's, it is identity, and look, it's a, it's a demanding sport. People get hurt. And when you get hurt and you can't do it anymore, then what? And that leads to a litany of problems, whether it's physical problems, health, mental health problems, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, just allowing something to become your identity is it's, it's rough. Like, be someone who does strongman and loves painting miniatures and going to miniatures tournaments, right? Like, do, like embrace your other hobbies, bro. Like, let's do it. I love that you, you called it a passage. A passage. <laughs> a passage in his book. Chapter 10. <laughs> the word of Dane. <laughs> <laughs> Dane 413. All right, we're done with okay, that. All right, we're, we're going to wrap this up. Let's wrap this up. Okay, so uh, homework? homework? Homework. All right, we're going to yeah. go to homework. 
Um, this is on, on the nutrition end. I think this is a, just a bit more of a challenge, and it goes back to something that I, I mentioned earlier, and it's that if you, if you're one of those people who's constantly chasing that 15 pounds they want to lose, and, and just it's just like a cycle that you feel keeps repeating, just ask yourself why, and ask yourself: Are you truly unhealthy? Like, have you got blood work done? Or you know, are you unhealthy in that population? Is it critical that you lose that weight for the health? Or what is the basis of this goal? Like, is it based in shame? Is it based or Figure out what, what those feelings are that you're chasing and what you want that body to do. So take it from the things that, you know, if it is based in fear or it's based in, in, in feelings of shame, switch that up and really think, like, what do I want to feel and what do I want to do? And throw that scale at the damn window because it's, it is sabotaging you. And chasing those 15 pounds is, I'm going to guess, making your life a lot more miserable than you think it is. So, and again, just figure out what you really want to do and want to feel and think, is, that, is the scale really the metric that measures this, b- <coughs> measures this best? Water. Water. <laughs> uh, so the homework for, from me as far as movement is I would look at your week and see how much variability you have. What I mean by that is types of activity. So do you have low gear stuff like walking uh, or spending time on the ground, which, you know, Taylor and I spoke about last podcast, or do you have, do you also have some higher intensity stuff or do you shy away from that and be curious about it? See if you overly identify with a type of movement that's actually keeping you locked into doing it at times when you're not enjoying it there are some people who do things five days a week and two out of those three they don't enjoy so if they just did it three times and then added a new style in they'd actually be a lot happier and get more out of whatever practice they're putting in so I would look at your variability look at your implicit bias see if you're identifying as any of them and last but not least I would look at when was the last time you learned something new about movement when was the last time you tried to do something new with your body doing something new with your body uh, movement wise can be very humbling but it can also be a fun process because to be able to learn something new where your body doesn't yet know how to maybe coordinate it or express that range of motion is actually fun because that gives you an opportunity to see where in your personal, you know, snowflake world you could express more variability and learning new things, especially when it comes to movement can make it really fresh and it can take us away from the mindset of like, I must get my heart rate up to this degree. I must feel sweaty and whatever at this degree learning new things is a cognitive process and our body then learns better at other things in life that aren't movement based when we're also bringing that into our movement um, practice as it were indeed Um, and I know we didn't discuss this but as a book recommendation I think with this podcast it's probably good to recommend range uh, by David Epstein I believe yes poor bad uh, last name at this point in time but uh, David Epstein is the author of Range, and it's a great book. It is a great book. Range speaks to the benefits of being a generalist in a m- multitude of domains. So not just athletics. He mm-hmm. speaks about that in the corporate world as well as, um, you know, as an entrepreneur and that sort of thing. So I think it's a great read. It provides a lot, a lot of different examples, and it's in a bit of a contrast to his book prior to that, which was The Sport Gene. Yes, indeed. So to quickly wrap it up, um, are you operating based on generalizations that you've read online? Or are you striving to become a generalist by optimizing your individual system and body? 
Um, and further to that, are you operating based on things you don't want to feel, like fear or shame? Or are you operating based on things that you want to feel, like having great energy and vitality and self-love? And are you worried about things that are going to happen to your body? Or are you operating based on what you want your body to be able to do? It all depends on that filter and moving from going based on generalizations to becoming a generalist who cannot thrive in any environment is, uh, is life-changing. So uh, thank you very much for tuning into this episode. We will be with you again in a few weeks. And until then, you can, uh, of course, follow us on Instagram at move underscore daily underscore EDS, movewelldaily.com. You can follow us, subscribe on YouTube, on all the podcast platforms. So thank you again for tuning in. Thank you to Taylor Oaks. And we will catch you next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.